Welcome to Veterans Day of Mind. I'm your host, Geraint Jones. Guys, guys, guys. Um, when we had, we've had a few guests on this year uh, where I've got to admit it has been meeting my heroes time. Um, particularly we had, we had, uh, we had Dale Dye on, Captain Dale Dye. We've had Stephen Pressfield on. Um, two guys who I've looked up to for a long time. And today we have a, a third guest on the podcast who who is someone I've looked up to for about eight years now when I first came across his book, Matterhorn. Um, his name is Cal Malentes. Uh, he is, uh, for me, the gold standard of writing when, um, when it comes to to war novels. Matterhorn, I think, is untouchable. It's up there. As, it's one of the best. It's, one of the, it's an epic book. I mean that in every sense. And it will go down in history um, as one of the best books ever written about war. Um, by the time you listen to this, hopefully a lot of you guys will have got a chance to read in it or at least start reading it. Um, I, I wasn't sure about how to go about this podcast because uh, Matterhorn was, it, it, well, it is such an important book to me. Um, and, and it's not a, it's not a, fi- uh, sorry, it's it's not non-fiction, right? So it's um, it's about Carl's experiences or, or it's been written from his experiences, but he made a novel out of it rather than actually put in detail by detail what happened to him. And I was in two minds about whether or not we were going to look at the book and then discuss parts in it. And I thought, you know what, it's just such a special piece of art that I don't want to do that. Because one of the things that I think puts so many people off reading is that when you're in school, you get taught to deconstruct a book, which is like, it's like a car, right? You don't look at a Lamborghini and go, God, that's a nice car because, you know, someone's like, right, look at this little spring that, you know, is used in this part of the car. I don't even know what I would be, to be honest, because I know nothing about cars, um, except that they get you hot chicks. Um, But like my my point being is that like, it's something that needs to be appreciated as a whole. So I 100% recommend that you read Matterhorn. Um, It's one of the best books that I've ever written. Um, so check that out. It'll, everything's linked up in the show notes. It'll take you through to Cal's Amazon page and everything, so you can check out his books there. Um, Cal did write another book called What It's Like to Go to War, um, and that's one we're going to be discussing kind of part out of that today. Um, it was one of these episodes where um, I, I put in a lot of prep with notes and things like that, but the, the conversation just kind of took a life on its own. Cal is a, a real thinker, uh, and it was a pleasure to get to uh, to get to hear some of his thoughts about war, about morality. Um, honestly, it's one of my favorite episodes that we've done, um, and I'm very grateful to you guys because if you guys weren't turning up and listening to the podcast, I never got to have this conversation with one of my heroes. I did get to have it. I owe you one uh, big time. As I always say, I love you guys long time. Um, thanks so much for being here, guys. Thanks so much for making this happen. I really appreciate it. And um, let's get into it, shall we? Please give a very warm welcome to Mr. Carl Marlantis. What are the kind of, um, generally, what's on those bookshelves then? So I know you've got, obviously, you've written about war, you've, uh, you're a Rhodes Scholar, you've done the philosophy side of things. So what what's taken up most of the bookshelves? Well, uh, I would guess a, a, a huge portion of it is fiction over to the left side there. And then right directly behind me is um, a lot of, like, religion, uh, you know, Eastern Catholic, uh, just uh, different things, translations of the Bible. And then over on this other side over here is, is, is history. Um, you know, I've got, I've got Churchill's, you know, whatever it's called, the closing of the hymn. What was it? Anyway, his memoirs of World War II. And then also he did, he did a, a history of, of English speaking people. And I've got, you know, some military history. 
So I guess I would say it's uh, half fiction and, and and half philosophy and religion and half and and a quarter I mean quarter history quarter philosophy and religion. Well, I've got you on my shelves, uh, and I know a lot Good. of my friends have too. Um, and I want to I want to start the podcast really not just on behalf of myself, but on behalf of a lot of the guys to thank you for writing those books. Um, yeah, I was speaking to my one of my platoon commanders yesterday, and he was just saying that like he was like he helped me make sense. Because when he moved to London after uh, after you know the, the after Afghanistan and Iraq, he was like he helped me make sense of it, and I know that's how a lot of the guys uh, feel too. Today I don't really. I was I've been on to because we've been um, going back and forth on email for a while now, and I've been in two minds about how to to do today's podcast because yeah. I love Matterhorn, um, and for those that aren't familiar with it, it's a novel based on your experiences rather than a nonfiction. Um, you know, like a, a nonfiction book, like I did with Brothers in Arms, and I, and very fortunately, you also wrote a book called What Is Like to Go to War, which is more um, is, is is nonfiction. And I thought I don't want to be picking pieces out of Matterhorn and then having someone go and read it. So for anyone listening, go and read Matterhorn. In fact, pause the podcast, go and read it, and then come back <laughs> to it. Um, and I and I will I am going to be pushing the book on people before we get to before we release the podcast. Because I, I feel like it is a work of art as such. And even though it, it is based on real experience, I think it should just be read as one and left alone and that we can concentrate on what it's like to go to war. Because um, honestly, rereading this for the... Because um, I, I, I bought this book when I first read Matt Horn, which is probably about eight years ago now. Um, and reading what it's like to go to war, when I first write, read it, and we, we can, we'll talk about this, I'm sure, later, I was in the numb stage. Yeah. And I just and and I was like, oh, it's not really anything in this book. I just blew through it. And then when yeah, I reread right. it now, yeah, reread it now, eight years later, I'm like, oh my god, oh my god, this is gold, <laughs> this is gold. Because now I've been through it, and we'll come into it. But I just want to say thank you, Cal, for doing this. You've helped a lot of people. You've helped me, um, and I wanted to get that out on the slate first things first. So cheers. Well, thank you, thank you. It's uh, it, you know, an old friend of mine, he was a World War II carrier fighter pilot. Once said to me, he says, Carl, he said, if you're granted even one small victory in your lifetime, you're better off than most. And I sort of feel like I was granted one small victory with, you know, the reception that I've had with Matterhorn and what it's like. It's been, uh, yeah, I, I can I can feel pretty good about that if I get hit by the bus tomorrow. You know? <laughs> well, please don't. I would like more. I know. Um, <laughs> um, so um, when you mentioned the World War II veteran there, um, I know you had some family who were served in in World War Two. I was curious to know what it was like for you um, as a child growing up. What 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 war meant to you as a kid? Well, yeah, I, I grew up in a little logging town. I mean, that was most of the everybody was either a logger or a fisherman, both very dangerous jobs. And I I don't know a single friend of mine whose father or uncles weren't World War Two veterans. I mean, it was just. They just, they were in the war. My dad was in the war. All my uncles were in the war. Um, and so we, we, we grew up sort of with this idea that that's what you did if you were a member of the Republic. Uh, there was a draft. I mean, the draft was still there. Everybody knew that once you got out of high school, unless you could go to college, the, the odds were you'd get drafted. But it was a feeling of, of combination. It sort of looked like... Um, well, like, like paying your taxes. I mean, no one wants to, <laughs> you know, but we all know that if you don't, you can't get roads and you can't, you know, have schools. And so, okay, so we do it. 
And the boys kind of had that feeling of, of generally, it's like, well, I don't want to get drafted, but, uh, you know, I kind of owe it. Um, and it's only three years. And, and, and then what you had is, uh, but if you, decided to volunteer you could actually get your branch of service because you're almost certain to go in the army if you were drafted um and so a lot of the guys and i have to admit to this it's not wasn't just patriotism or things like that i um i played football i love playing football and most of the football players joined the marines Hmm. and uh they would head down south to someplace called san diego uh and they'd come back to where we were when our climate is like England's. I mean, it rains all the time. And uh, they'd have something we'd never seen before called a suntan. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> and, but, but they would literally come back after being at, at Marine boot camp. And I swear their shoulders were four inches wider. And they'd swagger up and down the main street of our town, you know, 18-year-olds full of beans. And I just was like 17 or 16 and said, I want some of that too. I don't know what that is. I don't know what that is. I will want some. That's like, you know, like, like your organizations that are, that are elites like that. You just want to be part of that. And then there's, can I do it? And so all of that was always just sort of the milieu of growing up in the, in the fifties and early sixties in this little town. And, uh, and then of course the war started and uh, I had joined the Marines before the war started. And oh, okay. uh, uh, because of, of just what I was saying, the combination, all of our parents, uncles, scoutmasters, you know, even my, even my, the minister of my church was a World War II veteran. Um, so it was just in the, in the milieu. And I think today I like to, I like to say that something has changed. Um, people refer to joining the military now. And when we were kids, it was called joining the service. That was when you were, that was when he was in the service. Don't use that word anymore. And I think that that's a significant, I mean, I'm a language guy and I think that I'm attuned to a a big shift in the way our, our country's attitude toward military services. It's, it's, it's different when it's, when you, when you join the military, Mm -hmm. that's just different. It's a different attitude and not doing it as, I mean, (laughs) the mixture is still there. You want to serve your country. You want to be patriotic. On the other hand, you kind of get recruited. Well, we're going to give you, you know, a bonus and we're going to give you good pay and we're going to get you a pension when you're done. And that's a real different kind of a, of a look. And I think that going to the all-volunteer military here has had unintended consequences um, that uh, uh, we need to deal with, which is the increasing distance between people who serve in uh, the military and people who don't and don't have a clue. I mean, honest to God. I mean, like when I did Matterhorn, I, my wife said, well, you know, nobody knows wh- whether a platoon's bigger than a company or whether a destroyer's smaller than a, you know, a battleship. Nobody knows that anymore. I said, what? That's ridiculous. And so I asked around and nobody did. So I had to put a glossary in, you know, <laughs> so that modern readers, quote unquote, and it's not because they're modern, it's because they just are disconnected. Every woman in town knew that a platoon was smaller than a company because her husband was in one. That changed. Sorry, I was going to say you've had exposure as well, though. To the, the you were saying about the you know the small logging town where everyone was in that military thing, but you've also been to Yale, you've been to Oxford, you've been to a lot of these other places now where military service isn't the norm. You know, even you know, um, even like the uh, twenty, thirty years ago. 
because it, it's certainly the thing now if, if you do serve in the military and I do think the word serve is important as well I, I, I think you're absolutely spot on with that um, that you're in a minority now if, if you serve and you're 100% in a minority if you choose to be in the combat arms of something like the Marines yeah no that's true I I, uh, um, I think that that uh, even when I was at Yale, which was in, I got out of Yale in 67, which was at the height of the war. It was already um, starting this sort of thing about, well, you're just a damn fool if you're going to go in the military because you're going to go over there and get killed for no good reason. And uh, that, and I can, I can remember, um, I, I, I've said, said this before, but I was I was in one of these two o'clock in the morning conversations with with these you know friends of mine at Yale, and we were talking about the Vietnam War, which was you know raging at that moment, and um, and somebody said, "Well, it's all just based on a lie," and I sputtered. I mean, I literally sputtered. I said, "But, but, but an American president would never lie to Americans," and they all broke into laughter. I mean that hit me right between the eyes. I was the only one that said an American president wouldn't lie to Americans. And they just laughed. That's the difference between an East Coast sophisticated upbringing and a logging town upbringing. And uh, I have to admit, they were right. (laughs) (laughs) That was Johnson lied. And so did McNamara. And, And that's one of the things that I have a remaining you know, I, I don't get angry. People say, why do you think about, you know, the war? I think it was a mistake. But I, I think that it's like um, these people were World War II veterans. They had fought serious dictators who were seriously trying to take over the world. And so when they saw, you know, red China and the, the North Vietnamese, uh, they just thought the same thing. And it wasn't true. They didn't, they didn't get it right. I don't. I, I think their motivations were pure. They just were mistaken. But where the, where I get mad at them is that they knew they it was a, a bad deal, unwinnable. We were sort of on the wrong end of of history, so to speak. And they knew that by 1965, and they would not admit to it. And the deaths in '65 were just a little over 2,000, and by '70 it was well 58 or 59,000, and. Uh, all of those, the vast majority of those deaths occurred after they knew it was unwinnable. But they, you know, I mean, it's politics. They didn't want to lose the election. They didn't want to look soft on communism. I mean, you know, all this stuff. So I don't get mad about them getting into it. I just get mad at them about not getting out of it once they realized it was a mistake. Yeah, I feel I feel exactly the same way about Iraq and Afghanistan. Yeah, you know, um, when I was there in two thousand and nine. They'd already shifted the goalposts, and in, um, instead of because you know, obviously, we went in there after Bin Laden, then all of a sudden we're governing Helmand Province, <laughs> and then and and then, and, but then I came back on R and R, and the news was, uh, well, we we have to keep going because we've lost enough guys. And I'm like, well, that wasn't the plan two years ago, and then <laughs> uh, lo and behold, I think we left in 2014. The Taliban just came back into everything. It was. So like like just like you and I'm sure a lot of listeners listen um, you know a lot of people listening to this will feel the same way it's people can go in with pure attentions but then you need to hold your hand up and say I fucked up you yeah. know we fucked up and it might cost you your career in politics but it's your career over somebody's life somebody's kid yeah you know? well I, I and and the, just one step further with that it's what what combat veterans need to do 
is try to find meaning. I mean, your friends are dead and some of your friends don't have any legs and you go like, what the fuck? What is that all about? You know, mm -hmm. why? And I have had to come down on the side of it's about your own personal souls. You cannot justify these intense experiences on sort of, you know, political, geopolitical grounds. It's like, well, we were there because the Taliban was there and because they've supported this and that. And because it unravels, as you just said, it starts to unravel after a while. So then what's the meaning? And I think that the meaning is what did it mean for me in terms of my growth as an individual, my, my spiritual growth, my psychological growth? Did I overcome, well, like you were saying, coming home and, and now what? Well, that's a huge growth, a personal growth. And, uh, and I kind of lay my hat there that that's where the meaning is. You're not going to find, I can't go back and justify the Vietnam War. I'm sorry. It just isn't going to happen. Yeah. You know, it was, but I can, you know, I, I was back at my old high school and they asked me to come back and I'm in the library, this little tiny high school. And one of the girls come, you know, raise her hand and she says, would you do it again? And, you know, they love, I love these kids. They'll ask you the questions that, you know, you never want to even hear. And I, yeah. I, I, I thought a second and I said, I would. And the reason I would do it again is because who I am today is completely uh, a product of my combat experience and the friends I made. And it has, it didn't form me entirely, but it certainly formed a lot of me. And I like who I am. I'm happy with who I am. And so I guess because I'm happy with who I am, I'd go back and do the, do the thing that formed me. And that's where I started getting this idea that that's what it was all about. Really, if you get get to the ultimate sort of, you know, what's the meaning of the universe kind of questions. What it was all about was forming me as an individual, the individual I am today. Well, and how did that how, how did that start? Like what in, what was instilled in you? Obviously, the sense of service, you know, to your country. But what were some of the other values that you gained from your parents and from, you know, from that community growing up? Um. Well, uh, let me think about that a second. Well, uh, it, it was a time when, when it, virtually everybody in town was a Christian of some sort or other. Uh, and uh, that was just sort of the, the water you swam in. I mean, it was like you just, you just didn't think twice about going to church on Sunday. It was just which church did you go to? Were you a Catholic or were you a Lutheran or a Baptist or, or whatever? And uh, so there was a strong sense of... of uh, you know, Judeo-Christian morality, that sort of thing, that, that was a, a backbone. Um, I think that that uh, another thing that was really important that, that is hard to find today was a, a true sense of community. I mean, people knew each other. Uh, and uh, so you kind of knew that uh, you don't get away with much. You know, there's, there's two... There, <laughs> I love to tell the story, but it's, 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 it's illustrative. Our local football, our football coach, his wife came down with cancer and they didn't have enough money to get to Portland to do treatments. So everybody in town knew it. He didn't say anything because he was one of those kinds of guys. And people just quietly started chipping money in at the local gas station so that whenever he came up, 
he was never charged any money for his gas. So he could take his wife across the mountains to get treatment. That's beautiful. That's okay. Now here's the other side of it. When he had an affair with the high school English teacher, everybody in town knew that too. Okay. That's a small town, but, but that kind of an upbringing would, would suits you to a military life because you don't get away with anything. You know, I mean, there's no hiding. I mean, especially in combat. It's like, no, I, I think I'm staying in the hole because I, I'm just I, I'm, I'm just resting my eyes. Mm-hmm. You're staying in the hole because you're afraid to get out there. You know, that's what's going on. And so you can't hide. And I think that I grew up with that sort of feeling. And I had a lot of, uh, I think, alone time. I had some experiences. I write about them in, the, in what it's like. I wouldn't have had these spiritual experiences if I hadn't spent just a lot of time alone in the woods. I think that that's important, that kind of. Uh, just wandering around. I mean, there was this elk herd that I used to follow uh, when I was a kid. I would follow it up to the mountains and back and, you know, I'd experiment how close could I get before the the bull would start to paw the ground and scare me and I'd have to back off. And But I was all by myself doing that. And my folks gave me a ton of freedom. It was like, where are you going? Well, I'm going to go up on the 400 line. I'll be up over there by Gobbler's Knob. Okay, well, if you're not back by dark, we're going to have to send the fire department. You don't want that to happen. Well, I'll be back by dark, you know, Mm. that that kind of thing. Uh, They just let me go. And uh, today, child services would be after them, probably. Yeah. Oh, yeah. But were were you kind of like, um, were you you quite an introspective kid when you were when you were spending that time alone? Were you asking a lot of questions about not only what other people were up to, but what like was going on in your in your head in your life? Oh yeah, no, no, no doubt. I, I was uh, introspective uh, just by nature, and um, I don't know what it is. I mean, you, you can get sort of mystical about it. I mean, I don't know if reincarnation is true or not, but I, I'm certainly have a, an idea that it's it, there's a good chance it's it is true because you know, some really brilliant people, you know, William Butler Yeats, and you know, people all, they all they all sort of had experiences of it, and. Since I was a tiny child, uh, I can remember embarrassing the hell out of my mother. We were on the streets downtown, and I'm about three, and I started screaming at her, I don't want to die. I don't want to die. And I and I can remember her, you know, well, he's okay. It's just, there's nothing. I don't, and Carl, you know, what are you doing? You know, she started shaking her finger at me, and I'm rolling on the street screaming in fear. I don't want to die. Where'd that come from? I don't know. Mm-hmm. Uh, and... Uh, and I started to write my dreams down when I was about eight years old. Uh, just uh, there was something about my dreams that fascinated me, and I'd write them down. Yeah, you you have, you you put those very like in, in vivid detail. You you have those um, in in the book. Yeah, is that so? That's something that's always been a part of your life. It has. It, it's just it's it's just been something that I was born with, and I think, like I said, I I, I was raised in a in a part of the world where that was not uh, inhibited, uh, you know, because I had plenty of time to just wander around. And <laughs> I always laugh, thank God I played football because I, otherwise all the kids in high school would, wouldn't have known what to do with me. But, uh, <laughs> you know, I, mean, I, I was just a little bit different. Uh, but, but, you know, I had a lot of friends and, and everything, but it was, <laughs> they would often just say, what? what goes on in your head? I mean, they would literally ask me that. What goes on in your head? And I go, I don't know. Just, you know, it's stuff. This is always stuff happening in there. Do you still get asked that now? Because I get asked that quite a lot now. Like, what the oh, fuck yeah. is going on no. in your head? <laughs> no, the, the, the really humbling thing is that um, my wife will be talking to me and she'll say something. 
and that'll start to unreal a whole film inside my brain. And obviously, I leave the conversation, and, and she'll she'll literally go like this to me, and go like, "Look at me, look at me." You know, <laughs> oh yeah, right, okay. Where did you go? Uh, well, I went. I was in. I literally one time I said I was trying to imagine what it was like to be inside of a whale, <laughs> and she just went, "What? You know, I don't know what goes on in your head." So. <laughs> I try very hard to stay present, but it, it's just, that's the way my brain is. Yeah, I know. I, I took, um, so I think what something we might have in common as well is I was a little chubby kid, but I played rugby. So like, you know, I, I got, I had to, I was athletic. I was just fat, <laughs> um, but um, I was, uh, I remember once. I so did they make to, you a prop? Is that where you were? I was a prop. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but like, as I got older, I went prop flanker and then eventually fullback so i got i got trim yeah. as i went I, I went from the front <laughs> to the back um but like i, I lost a lot of weight when I, wanted, I decided i wanted to get in the military and i managed to um i managed to woo one of the the most prized girls in the school and we went up onto the mountain together and where she's like what are you thinking about and obviously that was a moment i was supposed to be like you and then kiss her and i was like where the butterflies come from? <laughs> and the look, I like the look of disappointment on her face. I know that's oh jeez, yeah, no bad move. Yeah, I know. <laughs> yeah. So any young lads listening, if she's, if any girl asks her that, you say just how lucky I am to be with you. That's give right. Her, there give, you are. You just get yeah. Give, give it a line like that. Um, I want to dig into this because we had, we've had um all for Stephen Pressfield on the podcast as well. We talked a bit about um past lives because. I mean, any of us that say we know what's going on as, an, as a liar, obviously. But I do think that there's something to this idea of of, of at least, not necessarily lives that kind of come back to people, but at least memories that either hang, hang around in a location or hang around. Um, because, you know, sometimes you go into a place and you don't even need to be told that something, back, you know, the hairs on the back of your neck stand up. And I don't know, I think there's something to the idea that, that, that some, the somehow, some way, memories... Can, can linger in places or in people and get passed on and you have those that kind of episode no i've i've had experiences of it i mean uh, one of the more stark ones is i was with my daughter who at that stage she was a teenager and we went to amherst massachusetts and that's where emily dickinson lived we'd never been in the town before had no idea what the layout was even just arrived and went to a car park parked a car and I said, I wonder where Emily Dickens ho Dickinson's house is. And she says, oh, I remember. What? And she got out of the car and walked through all these streets and walked to her house because she had said she knew Emily back in the day. Who's, who is em Emily, sir? Huh? Who is Emily, Emily Dickinson, sir? a famous poet. Yeah. I mean, who wrote in 1850s or, yeah, I mean, Civil War time. Wow. Yeah. And I, and I was like, whoa. Where did that come from? You know, like you said, there could have been some memory just lingering around or she could have had a past life or whatever. And, and I've had these, you know, sort of memories of uh, um, I, one of the one of the ones that was sort of more interesting is, is that I remember being on a horse in a cavalry unit someplace in Europe. And we had to we had to take an artillery battery out. And we were on a bridge and there was a sergeant and he came along and he was talking to us. I mean, all these memories came right. I, I was in a sort of a, I, I was a, a, a girlfriend of mine who put me into one of these states, you know. Um, and uh, we walked the horses down and we walked them even when the fire was coming. 
And then right at the very last minute, uh, we charge. And I remember, you know, coming up underneath the, 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 the guns because they couldn't get down, lower their elevation anymore. They were up on a hill. And my horse was shot out from underneath me. And I, I was explaining this to a guy. It was a, a guy at Oxford who was a military historian. And, and he said, well, what, what kind of stuff did you have on the horse? And I told him. And he said, what do you know about 19th century cavalry tactics? I said, I had nothing about them. I never, never even read anything about them. He said, well, that's the way it worked. Well, where'd that come from? Yeah. I mean, and, it, and you know, uh, people say, well, you're not, you have to be scientific about this. There's no evidence. Or, but on the other hand, that is evidence. I mean, I can't explain that, but I didn't make that up. <laughs> you know, I, I I just looked at my cat like I found my cat in a road. I never taught her to hunt, and she's amazing at everything. Like, yeah. and she so there was something in her that got passed along. I don't see that it's a stretch of the imagination to believe that there would be memories that get passed along from generation to generation. I don't see that as a stretch. Now, some uh, I I I'd be interested to know if you ever have. I call them kind of, because there's ideas, right? When you sit down sometimes, you're like, right, I really want to write a book about, and you start to think of ideas and you build it like you'd build a house or anything like that. And then there's what I call downloads, where where you're just taking a walk or something and all of a sudden, boom, and you've just been given, I had it recently when I came back from the States. I, I, I had a really long sleep and when I woke up, I had this entire story that was just there. Yeah. Didn't need any work or anything. Do you ever have anything like that? Oh yeah, I think not only me, but you read about like scientific breakthroughs. People will work, you know, a long time on a problem, get nowhere, fall asleep, wake up, and they have the solution. And uh, you know, a brain scientist will explain it that you know your unconscious brain is processing all the time. You're just not aware of it. All that data is going in. It's processing. It's processing, and then. It's nerve synapses happen and then suddenly there's the solution and you wake up with it and perfectly adequate explanation. Uh, the other side of it is, is that there's some kind of a, we're, we're tuned into something bigger than we are. Mm-hmm. And um, that comes through us. Um, I know that sort of a similar experience is that when I'm writing, uh, you know, sometimes it'll be like I wake up. I don't know if you ever had that experience. Mm-hmm. It's like, oh God, I'm I'm here in this back in my my little office, and it's you know 2020 instead of you know in 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 some logging camp in 1905, which is where I where I was, and and that's my best writing is when I'm not aware I'm doing it. Even I mean, it's an odd feeling. I mean, obviously I must be aware that I'm doing it, but I literally am sometimes shocked to find myself back here. Where was I? And I was just in it. And I think that when you're in that kind of a state, something's coming through you and uh, you just have to be humble about it. It's not like, you know, you don't have anything to do with it. You're just, luckily, you, you know, if you sit your butt down every day, eventually something's going to come through. Yeah. You know? oh, I, I, I totally agree. Sometimes I think about cafeterizing myself so I don't have to get up because that's usually when it is. I'm like, oh my God, I'm going to piss myself. <laughs> Cause that's right. you, cause you, and then you realize you've been sat there for like four or five hours. Yeah. Uh, and, 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 you know, and it's nuts. But like you said, because there's two ways of looking at that. You're like, I am an absolute genius and I could just come up with all this stuff. Or, or like you said, and this is what I think it is, you just, you're almost just like a conduit. For yeah, that's, that's right. You know, I think that that's the, that's the right attitude. Uh, because I, quite frankly, 
think of the trap you'd be in if it was you, because then the next book, you'd have to say, Jesus, am I going to come up to that again? You know, and it'd all be on your shoulders as opposed to the fact that, hey, I don't know, it's not me. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I wonder if that's, I I wonder if that's why so many people do end up feeling that stress, because I can't say that I've ever felt really stressed about writing another book because like, like, because, because I never really thought about it like that. But like you're saying, pressure's not really on me. It's on whatever's up in the goo or. (laughs) Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah. Your only job is to relax. (laughs) (laughs) You can do that. (laughs) But like, like you were saying earlier, though Carl like you are the man you are today because of combat um uh, and and we we, will rewind a little bit in a second but that's got a part of that dealing with pressure as well as you've dealt with calling in fire missions and calling in medvacs and stuff like that then you can deal with the pressure of your book deal oh yeah no no problem I mean (laughs) I have to tell you Christmas dinner about Four years ago, my oldest daughter, she's now 37 or 38, uh, puts her fork down. And, and you know when that happens, when the kid says, and she goes, Dad? And I go, uh-oh, it's, let's go to this. And she looks at me and she says, nobody shooting at you is not a good standard for a five-year-old. Right. <laughs> <laughs> because that's the way, I mean, if things went bad, I said, well, yeah, nobody's shooting at you. Get up, you know? <laughs> And I use that yeah. expression. Nobody's shooting at you, <laughs> right? So let's, let's let's take it back to um, let's take it back to the military for now. I could talk about past lives and stuff all day, but some of our audience are like, or some right. audience, they didn't tune in for that. Did yeah, they? they're like, I'm here for the war. <laughs> Give me the war stories. Um, so like, I want to know when you when you joined. I mean, because you're probably in for a few culture shocks. The first one leaving a logging town, as you were saying, to go down to um san diego i know um so you had the paris you got paris island that people know from full metal jacket right and then you've got there's a the marine corps training depot down in san diego too which i must say is a fantastic location my favorite one of my favorite cities in the on the world um so you so you headed down there so that must have been a a shock in itself was it well actually i ended up in quantico virginia uh same deal though i mean the the yellow footprints on the sidewalk two in the morning which i found out later they do on purpose i always wondered gee it's funny the bus schedule got dropped us here at two in the morning it's all scheduled because you're totally disoriented and uh because i i got into something called the platoon leaders class and you go to boot camp and you're an enlisted man but they 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 train you in virginia and uh, uh, that's that's the only difference is still DIs and, you know, the, the exact same. I mean, it's, a, it's exactly the same. It's just, they're just trying to weed you out. Uh, and uh, then if you survive that summer, uh, you become uh, like I became a Lance Corporal in the Marine Corps Reserve while I was going to college. And I'd have to go back in summers. Uh, and uh, th- but I didn't have to go to officer candidate school or or any of the or whatever they called it, uh, Naval ROTC or anything. I just, because I'd done that program, but yeah, I told, I mean, it's, uh, uh, I, I mean, it's, it's, uh, well, it's an initiatory experience. And I talk about that in the book. I mean, it, it's, it's what drives you from childhood into adulthood and the primary function. And I think that it, this is my, one of my definitions of being adult is when you move from being self-centered to being other-centered. And what boot camp is all about is they move you from self-centered to other-centered. I mean, if you screw up, you stand and watch the rest of the platoon get punished. You know, I mean, it's it, it, that kind of stuff is, 
is really important. They're trying to make a Marine or a soldier out of you, but the side effect is because you're moving into being other oriented, you, you actually do grow up. And, and, and then of course, once you're in combat, you grow up extraordinarily fast. And, uh, and I think, unfortunately, you grow up in certain ways and you leave other ways behind. Uh, it's sort of a lopsided growing up. But, uh, you know, there's a lot of very old men who are 19 when, when they come back mm. from war, but they still have no life experience in civilian life. So it's an odd combination. I, I should have asked, because you mentioned the team thing, and I do think this is so important at every stage in life, is like how... how like how important was that with you in fo- with football? Like, did you did did that transfer when you got to the Marines? You you already had that. Did you see there was a difference between people who had played team sports and people who had, who hadn't? Oh yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mean, I I, I mean the idea of um, well a play in in football or in rugby. Uh, you know, we're going to do this and that and this. This it's not you're going to do this. It's we're going to do this, and this is this is the way it is. This this whole unit of people is going to behave in this way so that we can get the ball down the other end of the field, um, and uh, that doesn't happen in you know golf, you know, yeah. and uh, it just doesn't. It, nothing against golfers. It's just a different thing, uh, and I think that that uh, the other thing that you learn is um, that your your failure like i was a i was a guard a lineman uh and if i didn't make the block my friend george nelson got creamed <laughs> you know <laughs> if i didn't make the block george got hurt uh and and uh that's a very fundamental uh learning that uh, for for a kid uh that you're responsible and you count I mean, even though your name doesn't get in the paper, George's name gets in the paper when he makes the touchdown. Yeah. But the fact of the matter is that you do learn that you count. And and counting, I think, is really important. And I think that's one thing that veterans miss when they come back. You don't count anymore. I mean, Jesus, you work for you know Starbucks and pump coffee. Uh, someone else can pump the coffee if you don't show up. But if you're in combat and you don't show up, somebody dies. You count. And so I think that when people come back, what do you miss? I think that one of the things I missed was that sense of, of I'm, I count. I really, this won't work without me. Uh, the civilian world works fine without me. <laughs> you know, and it's a, and maybe it's a bit of an ego problem, but it's, it's a true one, I think. No, I totally agree. I th- and we'll come on to more like post-tour stuff later, but just while we're on the subject, I will say to people who are looking at getting out of the military, find a team sport when you get yes. back out if your body's not too broken mind you there's wheelchair basketball there's something for everyone if like we've had guests on the podcast who climb um kilimanjaro and they haven't got legs so you can find the team sport somewhere but that's absolutely something that i think everybody should do there's another another angle that i found veterans find a lot of uh, you know satisfaction with there's a, there's like a, an outfit here called team rubicon and it's it's just disaster relief, and it's just a bunch of veterans started. It was a couple of Marines started it when a big hurricane hit Haiti, I think, and they just went down there and pitched in. And they another other veterans started joining them because it's again it's that team sport, uh, team feeling. But on the other hand, you're also you know doing a lot of good in disasters, and there's lots of organizations that are like that too. So it's not so it's sports and the and these these uh, organizations that help. 
Yeah, that's, that's a great point. I'm going to make a note in my notes here to put Team Rubicon in the notes because we have had a few guests on who are part of Team Rubicon. Oh, um, yeah. So they, you know, they do, they do great work. Um, I know they've been busy in the COVID stuff as well. So if anyone's listening as part of Team Rubicon, thank you. Yes. Um, so when you were when when you were going through this indoctrination program into the, you know the military, um, and I, I don't mean indoctrination, even though the Marine Corps is a, is a cult. Um, <laughs> I, and, I, and, I, and, I that's, and I'm saying that from that's from from you know this, some my other best, Marines, well, don't you? Well, my, some of my best friends are Marines, so um, <laughs> I, 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 I know it's a cult, um, and um, you know you're 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 you're, you're a young man. Young men aren't really kind of no very well known for thinking about consequences. Were you worried about going to Vietnam? Did you think you'd come home in one piece? Were you worried about the nation? You know what was going on in the in the nation at the time? You know what was the kind of the big picture? Oh yeah, no, there's no doubt. I mean, I I, I was worried. Um, a, a couple of things. One, five kids from my high school died there, so that that tends to focus you pretty pretty closely. You know, it's like God, you know. Uh, he died, uh, uh, and um, you know you're going through the training, and and uh, at the time during the training is realistic. Like, here's how you set an ambush, and um, and then they would show you pictures of a successful ambush. They're gruesome. I mean, you know, I mean, and and I go like, God, you know, in in three months I'm going to be there. And, and if I'm successful, this is what it's going to look like. And if I'm not successful, I'm going to be the one that the picture's being taken of, you know? And, and so, you know, no, I, I, I had my, my fears. I did. Uh, uh, then there's always that sort of young man's thing. Well, well, I'll make, I'll, I'll get through it. I'll be, I'll be the lucky one, but you know, there's another part of you that is much more sober than that. It's like, it's an odds game. I think that modern war, one of the things that, that I, talk about i don't know if i wrote about it but you know back in the days of you know king arthur if you were good with your sword well you had a much higher chance of surviving combat i mean it was up to you in a way if you were faster smarter but combat today if the if the ied is is detonated when your car goes by (laughs) there's nothing about being smarter or faster or anything or if the if the mortar round, you know, gets hit by the wind and shifts three feet this way or that way. Uh, so it's much more sort of probability in modern combat, uh, which you then, you, you, you can't sort of, you know, they'll say, we well, have to rely on your training and yeah, that shaves the odds and everything, but it's modern combat is, is just much more a matter of luck. I mean, I, I have to say it. Um, I, I always just find it. I, I I, I always find it incredible. I, I think that so much luck has been on our side because I, I look back on the tours that I've done and the tours my friends done, and I'm like, how wasn't there more of us coming home dead? I don't get it. And luck is a big is, is a big part of that. Yeah. You know, somebody somebody has a, a bit too much coffee on the other side, let's say, for breakfast, and um, that's putting it mildly because a lot of them took speed and, and that kind of thing. Um, and then it's shaking the hand a little bit too much, and that just that burst just goes to one side of you instead of in, instead of dead on, you know. Yeah. No, and and then and then you have to try and think about well, what's grace hmm. as opposed to luck? I mean, you know, and I I, I think about that is was I did I survive um, because I was supposed to write these books? You know, that sort of sounds egotistical, but I'm used to that. <laughs> 
<laughs> but, but, uh, um, Join the club. Yeah, I know. <laughs> you know, but the thing is, is it you? You do wonder why me, and that's you know survivor's guilt. Why me? And I think then that goes back to what we were talking about earlier. You just have to make meaning out of your life and and make why you important. Uh, it's it, it may have been luck or it may have been grace, but in, in either case, your responsibility is to make the sense out of it. You don't find it. You don't go looking for meaning. You know, it ain't, it ain't under the pillow. You know. Well, and that, and that's definitely a problem now. I think people are like, oh, I want purpose. I want purpose. Well, well, great. Yeah, everyone wants purpose. But like you said, yeah. you you, it, you need to go and put yourself in positions where you will discover what it is. It ain't, ain't going to fucking just come to you in the house because you it's say, right. yeah. dear Santa, I would like purpose. All right, right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, good. Yeah. No, I, uh, absolutely. You know, it's, it, you, have to, you have to push it. Uh, and then, you know, it, it, it'll happen. I mean, I, I firmly believe it. I, I think we all have a purpose and, it, and it, luckily you'll find it. Do, do you think do you do you, did you like have on your mind before going to Vietnam? I'm going to write about Vietnam if I get home. Oh yeah. <laughs> yeah. Right. I mean, I I I'll cop to that. I mean, ever since I was a kid, I wanted to be a writer. Okay, and and I have to I have to admit, it's like, well, if I survive this war, man, that'll be a story. I can tell that story, you know. And sure, it was in the back of my mind. There's no doubt about it. Uh, uh, that's being in 19, you know. Mm. <laughs> But uh, uh, I think that uh, I have to own that. Um, it may even been one of the many motivations for joining the Marines, uh, you know, because, oh, if I survive this experience and maybe I'll have something to write about. Uh, um, I think it's just about seeking out story, though, isn't it? It's like you would like because war is an adventure. Uh, it can be a terrible adventure, but it's an adventure. It's the biggest adventure that we can probably ever get on. Yeah. Um, you know, short of traveling into space or something, it's probably, you know, that's that's what you can do. And, and, then, and then if you are somebody who reads a lot and if you're somebody that writes a lot, you see things in stories because I'm sh- I know you went through a bit of a wild period yourself. I guarantee you there was times in your mind where you're like, I know this is a bad idea, but this is going to make a great story. <laughs> I'm going to do it anyway. <laughs> Yeah. One of my kids once asked me, Dad, did you ever regret any of the decisions you made? And I thought about it a second. You know, I never regretted any of the decisions. I just regretted some of the outcomes. <laughs> yeah. It's a good, good, good way of thinking about it. The, the great thing about being a writer is that you can just, you can turn the worst thing that ever happens into you into a profitable business. So, <laughs> so there's, there's anyone listening right now that's on the fence about writing, do it because, you know, you go to jail, you'll get a book out of it. You get the right. book out of it. Everything, 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 everything works out well. Um, so going over to Vietnam then, Carl, we have the, you know, everyone has this uh, from the movies and stuff. We all have an idea of what it's like. Anyone that's been to Afghanistan, Iraq, will have a memory of what it was like to get on the ground for the first time. Or oh, sorry, not on the ground for the first time, in the country for the first time. Do you remember any particular sights, smells, sounds, or anything like that from when you landed? Oh, yeah. I, uh, uh, vivid memories. I mean, the first thing is, is um, I went to war on a Continental Airline uh, passenger plane with stewardesses and high heels and skirts. You know, it was like, I mean, it was like they were sending us on some kind of business trip or something. I mean, you know, we're all just scared shitless and, and packed into this airplane. And there's, they couldn't serve us drinks because very few of us were old enough to drink. You know, I mean, it, it was, it was, it was just really weird. 
And so we, that's a surreal experience, uh, going to war like that. That anyway, my dad went to war. Uh, and then we got off the plane. I was hit by the heat. I mean, I, I grew up on, on the Oregon coast. I mean, literally, one day they shut the town down. The city council declared everybody had to go home. It was an emergency because the temperature went above 90 degrees Fahrenheit. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, but so there's I that. Into context for, I got to put that into context for British listeners quickly. That's yeah. a, a, it's a reasonably warm summer's day. Yeah, 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 <laughs> yeah. Um, so that and and the other one was was um, it, it's a wonderful story. <laughs> I love to tell stories. Obviously, that's what I do. But um, we were to join our company up another guy and I who had gone through training together, Rob Lynn. And uh, so our company was out about one kilometer from the Laotian border and about two kilometers south of the demilitarized zone, way up in the mountains. Uh, and we, we waited on the LZ for a couple of days because we couldn't get enough. We couldn't get the weather to get up, up to the mountains to get, join the company. Finally, the weather clears. We get in the chopper and away we go. And I'm looking out of the portal, trying to figure out, you know, where we are and everything. And and we 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 get close to this hill, and all of a sudden, about four holes appeared in the side of this helicopter. And holy shit, somebody's shooting at us, you know. And that chopper hit the ground hard, and Rob and I and a couple other uh, recruits who. Uh, bail out of that chopper and the first thing i look for is someplace to hide and i just go diving off the side of this lz into a pile of slash and uh chopper takes off and tim rabbit who was the exo of the company he, i can remember him leaning over and looking at me he says are you the new lieutenant <laughs> yeah well they're shooting at the helicopter not at you where's the fucking mail <laughs> oh, and you did you left it on there that was my introduction. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, well, uh, that's actually really something I, I'm, I find really interesting, though, because you didn't go out there as units. You went no. there as individuals. Yeah. And I think that, well, God, there's so much to get into on this. I mean, I think it's a terrible system to begin with. Let's say yeah. it like that. <laughs> but like, but that that must have been so intimidating for you to come into this company of of soldiers who had been fighting and knew each other and you're like fresh faced lieutenant coming in. That must have been almost as intimidating as the enemy, if not more. It so. was. It was. I mean, you, you talk about uh, wondering if you can make the grade or not. I mean, you are all shiny. Your uniforms clean. I mean, their uniforms are rotting, falling off of them. Their shoes are bleached white. They're you know, uh, and uh, yeah, you're going to go and what lead them? You know, I mean, no, no. It's it's pretty pretty frightening. And uh, luckily, I. I have, you know, the sort of, I, I guess I have good self-esteem, you know, that's another thing growing up in this little town. And uh, so, you know, I had to go down and take over my platoon and like I said, they're all, you know, about 19 years old and um, looking at you. And I can, I, I mean, I'll tell you, a 19 year old will know in about 10 seconds whether you're their guy or not. I mean, and if you're not, it's a self-fulfilling prophecy that you will be a failure. Uh, and uh, one of the, I was at a reunion about two years ago and a kid who, who was a squad leader, young, he was 19, his name was Flag Flaherty. 
he uh, he 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 came up and, and he said the first meeting I had with my squad leaders, I just told him I said I don't know what's going on. I said I'm pretty smart, but I have no experience. And you guys have been here a lot longer than I have, so you really got to help me out. <laughs> he said they were all on my side from that moment on, and. I, I, I kind of lucked into that because I just was just trying to be honest with them. I thought I can't, I can't hide behind the fact that I'm a rookie. And uh, I had a radio operator, Thomas, who had been there eight or nine months already. And uh, I'd, I'd start to make, you know, some dumb, dumb ass order. And, and Thomas was always right next to me. And sort of just, he'd sort of bump me and I, and I know what he was going. I go, what? And he says, I don't think so, Lieutenant. Look at over here. You know? <laughs> and I go, oh yeah, okay. And I just would listen to him. You know, uh, he was very important to me. And uh, there's a wonderful uh, video. It's about six minutes long that the AARP—that's the Association of Retired People—made of of Thomas and myself. Uh, uh, I, I start to bawl my eye, you know, because I think that the the important lesson was is that it's a team. And yeah, you're the, you're the sort of the control center, but you're not the car, you know? I mean, it, so you got to just understand that the, the rest of the team has a whole lot to say. And if you don't listen, team's not going to work. So I, I learned that early and I learned to listen. And it, uh, believe me, I still made plenty of mistakes, but uh, I think I made a lot less because I had help. I mean, that's just that simple. You just brought up something then that I've never even thought of before, and that's the fact, like, because radios and stuff have got smaller now, usually platoon commanders carry their own. I think we might have lost something real important in the late relationship between the radio op and the platoon commander. Mm -hmm. Because that was a... Because um, radio operator, by default, would usually be quite an intelligent soldier. Yeah. It'd probably be someone who could be an officer themselves, but for whatever reason, socioeconomic background or whatever, was just not in that position. But they were usually pretty smart, Using you, everyone, they knew what was going on, and you have that step back from things that the platoon commander doesn't have. Um, and I think we might have lost something there by taking that um, by taking that out. That's very interesting insight, and I think you're absolutely right because he was connected to you know all the all the uh, the privates, you know, and and when you're the lieutenant, as as much as you want to sort of be open and, and communicate freely and everything, you're an officer. And it, you're you're treated differently because I mean they've just gone through boot camp where you know they scared the shit out of them about you know speaking up in front of officers and stuff and then and then you get in combat and it's just the opposite again it's pretty bewildering and uh, yeah I think that that's right because not only is are you close to them, I mean you sleep with them I mean you 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 eat with them I mean they're they're right they're attached to your hip and. Uh, I never thought of it, but he was obviously a conduit, you know, I mean, you know, I, I, something like uh, one of the kids would be, you know, surly some morning. I go, what's wrong with him? And he could tell me, yeah, well, his girlfriend just dumped him. Okay. You know, uh, but see, that kid wouldn't come up to me and say his girlfriend dumped him, but he'd tell Thomas. Yeah. And that's an interesting insight. Because the thing is, like, a lot of people say that, like, because the, the platoon sergeant can do that. But the platoon sergeant, like, oh, I don't know if you guys call it a platoon sergeant, but the platoon sergeant, you know, the, 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 the basically the highest NCO in the platoon, he doesn't have that kind of relationship really with the, because he's almost kind of like the wet nurse to the, to the, um, to the officer. So <laughs> well, and he's he, older, usually. Yeah. 
Exactly, and he's probably not, and he's not connected with the privates because the privates are fucking terrified of him. Exactly, <laughs> no, they are. You think, yeah, I mean, three stripes in the Marine Corps, you're God, you know. Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, you're not going to talk to God. And uh, again, it starts to break down in combat because you know you're all in the same boat, you're all in the same mess. Uh, and uh, but there's still that that thing. So, no, I mean, I think that's a good insight. What's the conduit? The uh, the truth finding conduit. The sergeant doesn't have it any more than you do, really. And I think this is just illustrative of the way the military goes, though. They always look for what's efficient in the terms of, all right, well, we've got smaller radios. We don't need the radio man now. Right, let's get rid of him. And it's like, well, hang on a minute. What are we losing? Yeah. You know, what are we losing by... What are, we, what are we losing by getting rid of that person or this thing that's not necessary? That, there's not something that's measurable in weight that's carried or seats on a bus or, or whatever like that. And I think, you know, if you're listening to this and you're thinking, you know, because that, this goes for everything. It's not just the military, it's business or whatever. There might be someone in your business who's effectively that link man. It could be a lady that works in the canteen. You exactly. might think we'll get vending machines. That could be. Well, what just occurred to me is that, you know, you saw all these World War One movies where these British officers all had their personal servant with them. What do they call him? A Batman? Batman. What, Batman where, why are they called a Batman? I, mean, I anyway. have no idea because my, my, my <laughs> great uncle started as one and he, as a private, worked his way up to a full colonel. Um, but he did not have uh, any Batman costumes. So I have no <laughs> I have no idea where it came from. There was no giant spotlight or anything. And if, if the officer was savvy and a good human being, he would have used that person to figure out what was going on. Mm-hmm. You know, so it seems so that's interesting insight. I think that we have lost that. Yeah, it's a, it's it's um it's just one of those things. I think in general, um, I don't want to skip ahead too much, but I'm just I do have a note here that I do want to talk about is the with the way of like this kind of um take the way that wars looked at is we kind of it's it's fought by humans. But we we never look at it through a humanist point of view of like right what makes the machine work we go it's equipment it's it's equipment it's this it's that right. in, in, in fact le- in fact let's get into that now because one of the things you written about um in the book um is that you were saying that you you know you witnessed once and it made you very angry when headquarters staff were getting excited that the men that you fought with had taken a hill can you tell t- talk us through that yeah um. We we were assigned to take a hill, and there was another hill, uh, oh, maybe about a kilometer away from that hill. Uh, and the battalion staff had had uh, come in uh, to, you know, I I I'm sorry to be so cynical, but I think they 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 wanted to be able to, to tell their bosses that they were they were in combat. You know, uh, they weren't but uh, they were close enough that they could see us through binoculars. And um, we, it was, we lost a lot of guys and we, it was a difficult assault. Uh, uh, but when we reached the top and, 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 and were had clearly conquered, taken the hill where there was still cleanup to do, I could hear cheering and the cheering was coming from that other hill and it it infuriated me because it felt like they were at a football game you know i mean that was i mean that sense and and i get it it's like it's exciting is our side gonna win i mean you know you know yes it's great oh there they are they're on the top i can understand that elation but that's the same elation that, you know, the fans have when, you know, 
when the when the scrum half you know does the touchdown you know and and uh, that to me is inappropriate because a whole lot of people just died to achieve that um, victorious feeling. The problem is, is that, you know, a lot of those people that were cheering were 19 year olds, 18 year olds, they didn't know. I mean, they're, they're, they just didn't know. And so my rage was, was probably like contained it. I, I, I did want to shoot them, but you know, I didn't. <laughs> um, and I think that it's, it's because we, don't train our our young from an early age that that war is not a football game. I mean, if you just look at the news, I don't know if the BBC does it this way, but American news media, the war in Iraq, day seventy three. You know, it's it's like a fucking football game, and I'm going like, this is not the way to to spin this, really. You know, it's and uh, so that's what made me so angry about it was when I first began to understand that, that it's not a spectator sport and. And uh, people should have just been thankful for the ones that that managed to get to the top of the hill and be sorry for the ones that didn't. And quite frankly, they should be sorry for the dead NBA or the dead Taliban because those are just kids too. Normally, I mean, they don't, they're just doing their side and, and, you know, I'm no pacifist. I mean, if, if, if we have to, you know, kill people to achieve, you know, what, what I hope is our freedoms and our way of life, going back to the meanings of these wars, I think lately we haven't been doing that. I think it's uh, pretty hard to justify uh, in that regard. But yeah, that was that, that incident. And it's, it has stuck with me because I see it all the time. Uh, war, is, war is a big game. Can you have that insight without being on the, uh, on the sharp end? Would I have? No, no, or people in general. Can we expect people to have that insight unless they've been the ones um, that's closing with the enemy? You know, I think that uh, it's unlikely that they can have it spontaneously, but I think you can teach them about it. I mean, I think that that, that kind of stuff should be taught. Uh, it's, well, it's empathy. I mean, kids aren't naturally empathetic, are they? I mean, they sort of just, it's my toy. Shitheads. Yeah, right. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So what so so empathy's learned. And I think that this the same thing about, you know, yeah, you're excited and you want your guys to win, you know. Yeah, that's kind of like a game. I mean, games are kind of sports are kind of like war in a way. They're, you know, because you're just teams fighting, going against each other and anything. And I think that 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 we just need to um I don't know, we have Fourth of July celebrations. I'm sorry to say it's Independence from Great Britain, but uh, the, but, not, but if, not if I'd been around me. <laughs> <laughs> but there's you know fireworks and people sing patriotic songs and and all that sort of stuff. And I mean, our national anthem is uh, the Star Spangled Banner. It's about this flag that gets the shit kicked out of it by shells, and and the British are shelling this fort in Baltimore, and, the, and Francis Scott Key's writing this poem, and in the end, you know, bombs bursting in the air, and all this sort of stuff. And people are singing this, and they have no effing idea that we're talking about war. You know, I think that we just need to get the kid just when they're when they're in school say. Okay, this national anthem was was you know a guy on a ship. Actually, I think he was a prisoner on a British ship. Uh, yeah, I think wrote so. this poem about whether his flag was going to last the night, and and bombs bursting through air kill people. The, the, the classic example of that is uh, "Rockabye Baby." 
I mean, rock-a-bye baby on a treetop. This is about a baby falling out of a tree and probably killing itself when it hits the bottom. And we blithely go along singing this song without a conscious thought about what is actually being said. You know, and so we do that with patriotic songs and we do that with our history. And I think that I would argue that the only place that you're going to reach people is that they're not going to do it naturally because our own our instincts are to sort of root for our side and cheer when it wins is you have to teach them, you know, that, that there's more to it than this. And watch, watch this emotion, you know, watch this in yourself. This is, this is a, an uncivilized animal part of yourself that we all have. There's nothing bad about it, but just don't let it get you. You know, uh, we all get angry, but we don't all kill people. So, but nothing wrong with getting angry. It's just learning to control it. There's a lot to unpack there. First things first, who's putting a baby in a tree in the first place? And how did they sell the song rights to that? That's the worst song I've ever heard of. Um, the sports one is an interesting one, Cal, because you know what? What do we do in sports when, like, unless it's a big star, someone goes down, gets hurt in football, camera goes away, goes started talking about somebody else. If it's If you're a player, if you're a special teams player and you get hurt, they're going to commercial. They're not, right. they're, they're, and it, it's <laughs> very right. it's very similar in sport and then they're like yeah get him off come on and you'll hear people shouting like get him off the field that's right <laughs> like, you know no i know brutal really yeah well you know i mean I, I often i've quoted this many times but it's like we are not the top animal on the food chain because we're nice mm. all right mm. humans are mean little bastards you know that's why we're on top and we have to watch it because we do it to ourselves, uh, you know. So it's just it's consciousness, and it's 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 got to be taught. How do you teach without numbing people to it? Because one of the things that worries me is, like sometimes I, because I'll be honest with you, I like well, I know you have it too. I like to watch some fucking war, what I call war porn. Sometimes I like to watch a bit of war footage from Syria. There's a professional part of me that's kind of like, oh, I wouldn't do that, or oh, that's a good idea. There's that mm-hmm. part of me, and then there's the other part of me that's just like, ooh, 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 I just want to see stuff like blowing up and getting like, there's that, that part of me exists. So he ain't going anywhere. He's going to be there, right? But but like, but then but then in the back of your head, you're like, well, I wish this stuff wasn't yeah. happening, you know. But it, but it is, so I'm going to watch it. But then I know there's a lot of children that watch, you know, watching videos of cartel members behave people with chainsaws and stuff yeah now if you so some people like like some one of my friends he watched the tv show narcos and he's like i'm never doing cocaine again because now i have an idea of where it comes from um and that so that shocked him into that thing of i'm not going to then take a part in the drug trade anymore mm-hmm. but then other people see narcos and they're like fuck i want to go and get a bunch of cocaine and then yeah, fuck God, all and, those women oh wow that would yeah, be great yeah exactly yeah. so that, and then there's people that like you know people become desensitized to it how do you strike the balance between teaching people that it's not something to be envied and, and lusted after and, and without desensitizing them? I think it's got to go to the parents. And um, classic example is that they, you know, they just watch Narcos and, and uh, uh, some guy, you know, gets a, you know, a drill bit through his temple or, or, or nail driven through his hand and, uh, and then mom and dad uh, at the commercial break go into the kitchen and, and get a sandwich and a beer as if nothing happened. Mm. They're modeling indifference. I think that if you have a child watching a movie like that, and I'm with you, I love some of those movies. I mean, I really do. I mean, there's, because 
I have this animalistic nature. I have a warrior archetype. It's pretty close to the surface. That's not going to go away. And I'm, I'm no pacifist. I don't want it to go away. But I think that starting early, the modeling is that the parent should turn to the child and say, you know, those are actors. And they're doing that to make so that we can watch it. And they're doing that so that they can sell this commercial after it's done. Mm -hmm. And we should try and remember that real people sometimes get involved in these situations and they can't get out. And it's really terrible. Uh, and now we're going to go get a sandwich. Uh, just just that kind of bringing that consciousness. But we model indifference all the time uh, because we basically are indifferent. I mean, the adult knows it's a, it's a movie and. You know, he gets up and leaves. The kid has to be taught. Uh, we're not uh, yet uh, aware as a society of uh, bringing this horrible side to consciousness. Video games. The kids do them by themselves in their rooms. I mean, mom and dad just have to, you know, say, what are you doing? Uh, this video game. Can I see it? Yeah. Oh, okay. That's interesting. And there's this guy shooting. You say, yeah, okay. Well, you know, in real war. That guy might, you know, lose a leg, and and you know, I know this is a game, but see, that consciousness isn't brought in, uh, and you know, <laughs> I don't know. I just thought it. And if I ever hear you cheering about some guy winning, a hill, I'll beat the shit out of you for it. You know? <laughs> well, you know what? You know what? Like some pain-assisted learning is not always the is the worst thing. Um, you mentioned warrior archetype. I believe in the warrior archetype. I believe that some of us are born to fight, and here's why: a lot of people play video games. Everybody watches violent TV at some point or another. My mum watches people get murdered on a nightly basis, but yeah. she's she's the biggest pacifist you'll ever come across. Um, why? Why? Well, I suppose I kind of answered the question in a way. I suppose the warrior archetype is like why? Why some people play um, video games and watch those things, but only a few people go to war. Is that is that kind of how you see it? Yeah, yeah, definitely. I think everybody's got it. Uh, it it lies closer to the surface in some of us than in others. I mean, women have it, but generally speaking, it doesn't come out unless you threaten their child. Mm -hmm. uh, I have it if somebody, you know, uh, uh, calls me a name, mm -hmm. <laughs> you know, boom, it's there, you know. And <clears throat> so we all have it. It just lies closer to the surface in some of us than in others. And for those of us who are as close to the surface, we, we kind of wanted to exercise it. I mean, I, I was real curious to know about war. I mean, I really was. I wanted to know, you know, uh, my dad told me some stories, but no, nah, we don't know. Nah, I was wondering what it was really like. And, and that sort of thing is, is just in us. And I think that, again, a lot of people want to sort of shame that, you know, it's like, well, you shouldn't be that way. I'm sorry. It's like saying you shouldn't be left handed. You know, it's just the way we are. And the, the, the deal is, is that just when is it appropriate for this warrior archetype to come out? Um, uh, I just wrote an article. It was in the Wall Street Journal about policing. And in America, we have a terrible problem. And I think with uh, a lot of ex-military go into the, the police and they still think they're in the military. They still think that they're they're being warriors. They're being social workers, you know. I mean, they're well, supposed to be. <laughs> there's, yeah, I mean, this is not a, this is not the time to have your warrior archetype come out. Yeah. Now, if you've got you know the the gang lord holed up in the in the house and the SWAT teams coming in, okay, that's different. But that's like one zero point zero 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 one percent of the time. I, I saw a statistic once the the number of encounters where a police officer was 
was injured uh, in, a, in an encounter. And then an encounter is, you know, a traffic stop or whatever is like 0.0001. I mean, hardly ever. But we're running around with, you know, uh, M16s, automatic weapons and our body armor here uh, looking like Darth Vader. And I'm going, all that is doing is eliciting this warrior archetype. The warrior archetype is good when you're going to war and by God, you want your 18 and 19 year olds out there that with it full on, you know, putting them on the street with it is just really idiotic. Um, again, it's just consciousness. And I, I agree. It's one of the reasons I think there should be a very high minimum age for cops. I don't think you should be allowed to do it. I don't think you should have police that are under 35 years old. I just don't. That's exactly the number I came up with. 35. Hey, there we go. Stop <laughs> yeah, plagiarizing no. my work, Carl. <laughs> yeah, that's right. And I it's just gut feel. And, and quite frankly, I would never want to go into combat with a 35-year-old. No. Well, I mean, I, not, 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 uh, not, not unless it was somebody who I knew had always been like, not for the first time, absolutely. There's, I know a lot of 35-year-olds now who are still chomping at the bit. And that's kind of what I wanted to say. Is like, yeah. um, one of the things I need to, well, I, I'm going to get some heat for saying this probably, but this is the first thing that comes into my mind. <laughs> <It's your> um, <laughs> sorry, if you're not close to getting cancelled, are you even really talking? Um, so one of the things that I was, uh, I was thinking about is, you know, um, a lot of people and um, we, we repress parts of ourselves about shame, whether that's sexuality or whatever. So let's use that one. There's a lot of people that they feel they can't come out to their family and their friends because they will be judged for being a certain sexuality. It's very much the same with, I think, the warrior archetype. Like amongst your friends in combat, you can go, hey, bro, I know what's happening in Syria is terrible. I know there's loads of refugees coming out of it. I know this, I know that. But fuck me, I want to go over there and get some. And they'll be like, bro, I totally get it. But like a lot of people think, oh, what the fuck? What's wrong with you? You just want to go and kill people? Oh, you think it's a good thing? It's like, no, I know it's a bad thing, but I do kind of want to go and shoot bad guys. And they're like, well, you know, they're not all bad guys. So they're indoctrinated. Yeah, I know that. But this is how I feel. I can't help that this is the way I feel. Um, and I think that there's a part of us that expects that the more, the, the further along the line we got, that this stuff will just start falling off us. And one day we'll go, oh, no, I don't want to be at war anymore. But I'm starting to think that that's bollocks and we always will. Mm -hmm. uh, what's, your, what's, your, what's your kind of take on that? Well, a couple of things occurred to me as you were talking. First of all, <clears throat> the, 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 the one thing that dies off is testosterone. Right. <laughs> you know, right. it, it, you know, when you hit 60, it's starting to not be where it was when you were 25. I mean, and, and that does count, you know, right. in terms of uh, the, the aggression. Uh, there's a natural sort of uh, way that that dies. That, I don't think that's psychology. I think that's just that's that's physiology. Um, but, uh, absolutely. I mean, I'm still that way. I mean, I, 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 I mean, this is, I mean, I'm going to admit things. I mean, like s s some guy did something uh, that I didn't like. It was a politician and I, in my mind called in an airstrike on him. I mean, I called in an airstrike and I napalmed the son of a bitch. And I just, you know, I mean, it was just all of this went in my head. You know, I'm 75 years old. What are you doing? You know, <laughs> I get it, man. But, but it's there. It's there. The difference is, is that I'm not, I, I'm not going to uh, act out on it. You know, I mean, I'm, I'm able to sort of see that it's there. And uh, because I'm, because I've seen myself do things that I don't really feel like, you know, we're, we're very nice. Um, the other thing that, that we have to become aware of is that these fighting warrior instincts developed 
you know, over several hundred thousand years when all we had was our, was our hands and maybe a rock. So that when the warrior instinct comes out, there's not going to be much collateral damage. Mm-hmm. I mean, you hit a guy with a rock, you're not going to hit anybody else. But if, if, if you hit them with, with, you know, artillery shells, there's going to be all kinds of it. Same instinct, but the technology has made the, uh, uh, I guess you'd call it the collateral damage from, from the warlike act way, way beyond what nature ever was designed for. Uh, and again, the only way to stop that is to say, look, the instinct is there it, it, and it's a good one. I mean, it protects your family. It protects you. It does, it does good stuff. But if that instinct is unchecked because what we can, the destruction we can do now, it's not just our hands in a rock. I mean, it's, you know, it's, it's got a, a, an infantry uh, squad leader can call in B-52s. I mean, it's unbelievable what can happen, you know? I mean, it's just, the, the power is just incredible. People don't think about that. Um, so the instinct has to be accepted. And I think even honored, it's a, it's a good instinct, uh, but you have to watch it when it's applied with the, the technology we have today. And in, in, in our own lives, as well as veterans, I think, to be honest, we should give ourselves a pat on the back for the times where we don't, because like you mentioned the politician, the napalm, which put a smile on my face because there's not, <laughs> there's not really a day goes by that I don't want to hang a politician but I don't go out and hang a politician. Yeah. <laughs> and I think that that's something that really as a, as a veteran community, you know, for all different wars, I think we should, like we've gone from, we've gone from killing strangers in their backyard to not doing it in our own homes, even though there's a probably a point every day where we want to beat the crap out of someone. We don't. Yeah. And I think we should give ourselves, uh, you know, a little pat on the back for it. I think so. I think that that's, that is, is something that we should do. And I, I agree with that. And, uh, um, and the more you encourage that, the more likely it is to happen. You know, it, it, it a lot of that comes from talking. I mean, like this, this podcast is great because, you know, we're talking honestly and people can hear it and they can agree or disagree, but there'd be a lot of people that say, hey, I, I wanted to napalm the shit out of people several <laughs> times, you know, it's okay. It, but it's also pat on the back. You didn't do it, did you? Because yeah. you knew it was inappropriate. All right, guys, we are going to hit the pause button for one second uh, because we are brought to you today by Combat Fuel. You know Combat Fuel by now, guys. If you haven't tried them, what are you waiting for? I use the pre-workout. I use the pump-up. Uh, I like to think that I'm looking better the last couple of months, guys. I'm just going to put it out there. I think that um, I'm getting into better shapes. Why? Because my workouts have been more focused and intense, and I put that down to using the pump-up because, to be honest, what makes you train harder than seeing some nice pumpy... Like, I like it when you when your veins start to pop out in the gym. They start... Ugh, start burst out from underneath underneath the skin that's what i like it drives me on um and i i started it off i was just doing it a little bit to begin with but now all the time now every session i am mixing half a scoop of pre-workout combat for pure the combat fuel pre-workout i'm mixing half a scoop of that with two scoops of the pump up and uh it's going well abs are starting to come back a bit um don't know how long that's going to happen for with winter but you know there we go um so i've been doing that guys and i've also been 
drinking the vegan protein. And not only drinking, sometimes I take a scoop, I put 150 mil or 100 mil, depending on how thick I want it, of almond milk in there. I whisk, whisk it up, make myself a nice little mousse, aka souffle. So that's what I've been doing, guys. Um, I can't recommend the vegan protein enough. The taste is mint and it doesn't give me the flatulence. Google it if you don't know what that means. Um, for the um, um, that, I, that I get with, with whey protein shakes and that kind of thing, guys. So check them out at Combat Fuel. If you want money off, use the code VSOM, V-S-O-M. Use that at checkout. You'll get some monies off, right? And then you can spend that money in the Royal British Legion shop. Wow, what an amazing segue, guys. The Royal British Legion... I've been supporting veterans and their families for over 100 years. Um, they support this podcast, guys. They don't just support this podcast. They enable this podcast, right? If I was a drug user, which I was, but if I was one, they would be that friend of yours that always turns up with a few bags and is like, oh, come on, guys. You know, we can do it. They're an absolute enabler. Um, and they're in need of your help, guys. They are in need of your help. Um, it's a tough year for everyone. Coronavirus, COVID, fucking global conspiracy, whatever you want to call it, whatever you want to think of it, whatever the reasons you believe it's happening, the fact is that it has impacted the money coming in to the Royal British Legion because obviously the poppy appeal could not be held in the usual way. And also, it's putting people out of work. A lot of those people are veterans or they're veteran families. Um, small businesses are going under at a massive rate. And by the way, while we're on that subject, please support local businesses, guys. I don't want to hear you complaining about local businesses going out if you're going to co-op instead of going to your local, local business, right? So while we're on the subject, let's support local businesses. Right, now back to the poppy appeal. Um, guys, yeah, so there's there's going to be a lot of people. Mental health, obviously, uh, a lot of people are suffering this year because they've been locked up in their houses like animals um, and... Um, you know, pe- people need help, guys. So the Poppy Appeal needs to raise that money because a lot of their uh, Royal, British re- re- Royal British Legion's resources come from the Poppy Appeal. So how can we support the Poppy Appeal while we are locked up in our houses like animals? You can do it by going to at Royal British Legion or royalbritishlegion.com um, or, org, or .org.uk, I should say. Um, it's all linked in the show notes, guys. they got the Poppy store on there. You can go in there, get your poppies. they got all kinds of Poppy merch, Ali Poppy merch. Uh, go in there, guys, check it out. Uh, and if you can't afford anything, guys, because I know a lot of people are hurting financially right now, and at the end of the day, the Royal British Legion would not want you going into debt to have to support them, okay? So I want to put that out there. If you've got the money and you want to support them, great. But don't go putting yourself into a bad position because that that's going to benefit nobody. Even though obviously everyone would appreciate everyone appreciates the intention behind it, but it's just not a good idea, guys. Practically, all right. So um, the ways you can help though, share the word, spread the word. Um, you can go to the, the the website, guys, and there's all kinds of ideas to help on there. Okay, uh, it is massively important that we do this, guys. Honestly, massively um, important. I am going to be putting up um, a few items for auction. So keep an eye out for those. They're going to be on social media, auction a few things off. We're going to have some books on there. Got some, uh, got T-shirts. Uh, got, we got some stuff to auction off. We're going to raise some money for the Poppy Appeal, guys. So let's get behind it. Let's support everyone. One big fucking team. One big happy team. Um, all right, guys, let's get back in the podcast. Shall we? Thanks for listening. I appreciate you. And uh, cheers for everything you're doing to help support the Royal British Legion. So one of the things you kind of pose in your book is the question of how can you never, or sorry, how can you return home if you never left? All right. What, what, what do you mean by what do you mean by that? And um, 
do you still feel the same you just, do you still feel the same way about it now as you did when you wrote the book yes i do it's even it's even worse today than it was i talk a lot about if you're if you're going to enter the space where you're killing people i i say that's a sacred space i mean religion is about death I mean, if, if we didn't die, I don't think anybody would be worried about what, what happens afterwards, obviously, you know, and that's what religion is, is about to a large extent. Um, and if you merge these two worlds, um, it's psychologically quite damaging. You have to get yourself into a different frame of mind to be the weapon of, of your country. Uh, which is what you are. And uh, to act like that, you have to be in a very different frame of mind. You have to, um, in the old days, you would actually get on a ship and then you would go someplace else. And, you know, you, you would have, you know, different uniforms. And uh, there were psychological symbols that said, I am leaving normal civilian life. And I am now going into what I call the, the, the battle space or, you know, the, I got, I got a little artistic. I call it the temple of Mars, but it, it is where Mars reigns, where that war God reigns. And it does, the war God doesn't reign at home, thankfully. Yeah. So it used to not be thought about because the technology was the way it was. My dad got on a boat and, and went to England and then he, then he landed in Normandy. And then, you know, I mean, when he came home, he was came home on a boat. It was a long time. And my mother didn't even, he didn't know I was born until three months after he was in the battle of the bulge. And he got a, he got a, a, a some kind of message from the red cross. Congratulations. You have a son. Uh, you know, I mean, how different he was in a separate space. Where he, where he was involved in the killing. Today, I mean, I don't know what the British Army is like, but God, the American Army and the Marines are falling into it just as bad. I mean, they bring bowling alleys with them. I mean, you know, it's just like yeah. McDonald's and Pizza Huts. I mean, it's like America just went to Afghanistan. So there's, it, there's, and and it's like all the comforts of home. And I'm going like, well. I understand that you want the comforts of home. Who doesn't? But on the other hand, the psychological issues are enormous because you're no longer separating the civilian life uh, from from the, the 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 life where Mars is is reigning. And um, drone operators are the epitome of it. I mean, they literally go to work, commute commuter traffic. Uh, you know, some guy says he'll pull the trigger. They kill some some hopefully Taliban leader. And then they go home and take their daughter to ballet class or their son to soccer practice. And it's got to be enormously confusing. And then what, what happens is it starts to bleed over. I mean, it, it, the, well, okay, look at the policing. I mean, we were just talking about policing. Uh, suddenly the, the police are more like military. Uh, they, and it's because the symbols are, are bleeding over. The police are dressing like military. Military are dressing. I mean, I was... <laughs> I had a I had a, a, a meeting of some Marine Corps generals, and they put me up in a, in a hotel right next to the uh, Pentagon. So I went down for breakfast, the usual horrible breakfast buffet, and the place was full of people in uh, what we called uh, you know camouflage utilities. I don't know you know but anyway fatigues whatever they're called combat gear. 
They were there, you know, getting their coffee and their bacon and everything. And they were dressed in combat boots and everything. And I talked to a couple, where are you going? Oh, I work at the Pentagon. Uh, what do you do? You know, I, they sit at a desk and shuffle papers. Why aren't they in class A's? Why aren't they in civilian style uniforms? See, they're in combat gear. And they're, so I'm going, this is weird. This is, this is a bleeding over of the two worlds that is psychologically damaging because, you, like I said, you, you, you start to get confused psychologically. Uh, I'm now doing something special and different, and I hope temporary, as opposed to this just goes on all the time. And uh, again, when, when you have wars that have lasted 20 years, I think the last time England was in a war like that was probably the Napoleonic Wars. I mean, I think entire generations just grew up, you know, well, you just, you know, go off and fight Napoleon. And, you know, but 20 years is a long time. And there's the whole generations that have grown up with knowing nothing else. And it's just, it's just bleeding back and forth. It becomes normal life. It should never be normal life. It should always be special. And I think that, uh, um, these symbols and and these ways that we used to unconsciously be able to separate it have to be consciously taken under now uh, because you know you you can't come home if you haven't left and and I think that uh, uh, you can't leave it behind if it looks the same. I mean you know you go bowling you know at, at some air base in Afghanistan you go bowling at your local bowling alley it's the same activity don't something in in your psyche is is going to react differently. Then if now I'm bowling with my friends and wow, thank God it's, I'm not fighting anymore. So I think it's a it's a psychological, uh, yeah, symbolic sort of a, a, a tool that that we're screwing up. I do think with the with the bowling alleys and stuff. I mean, it might. I think air crews and stuff probably get to use them. I don't know if grunts get to to use those. I think they're creature comforts to the the rent. Do you get? Do you get? Did you call them ramps or what did you call the people in the rear? Yeah, uh, yeah, rear echelon motherfuckers. Yeah. yeah, so they get to use them. But the fact is, is I, I think the the main one is the communication home. Because, oh, yes, absolutely. Like, yeah. like, so people are on that because there'd always be that guy, especially in Iraq where we were in bigger bases. In Afghanistan, we were sometimes, we, you just you didn't have communications because we were out like in little little checkpoints and stuff, which was great. It was actually probably way better for us because you spent all your time talking shit through with your friends and stuff. But, you know, guaranteed in Iraq, someone's got problems going on at home. As soon as you're off that fucking mission, they're they're on the phone in internet cabins all night. Do you think their mind is on that mission then when they're going out the the gate? Absolutely not. So from from, from a tactical point of view, it's not a good thing. But then absolutely not for a psychological one. um, For a psychological one either. I... It, it's all done out of good intentions, but yeah. it's and, and what I tell you another one, Carl. I'd love to know your opinion about this. Is because I've always thought the idea of doing this rotation of what because basically what happened in Iraq and Afghanistan is our units. If you were a British soldier, you do six months in Iraq or Afghanistan. You come back, you'd have some leave, you'd start the training cycle for the next one, you go back, and you do that. And I've got friends that have gone like six tours like that yeah. or, or more every year, six months away. Pre-deployment cycle, uh, sorry, get some leave when you come back. Pre-deployment cycle, another six months away. How are you ever supposed, like, in the Second World War, it was like, right, here's the fucking enemy. Yeah. When the war's finished, you're coming home. I would have much yeah. preferred that. I know I, I hear some people say they wouldn't have. I'm like, well, you could have signed off and left. Do your bit and then don't come back. But I think for a lot of other people, there's going dipping your toe in and out was, was terrible. 
No, I, I, I agree. And I think that what, what that comes, one of the issues of that is this confusion between police and military again. Mm. Uh, uh, the police go to work every day. They, they, they go to the precinct house and they go to the neighborhood and then they come back and then they go back and they come back and they go back because they're doing something very different. We're taking warriors and we're trying to make them behave like police. We're trying to sort of keep the peace in Afghanistan. We're not defeating anybody. I mean, who, who are we going after? Well, we're trying to keep the peace is what we're trying to do. That's police work. There is no end to that war until you kill every Taliban leader. Well, then you start to get practical. It's like, well, that's not going to work, is it? Because they're just going to always be popping up. And, and so maybe we had, maybe the answer here isn't a military answer. Yeah. Uh, I kind of am with you 100% that if you can't define the enemy and say, when this enemy's gone, then you come home, you don't have a military situation and you're not, and you're, you're, you're being an idiot to send soldiers to do that, especially for 20 years. At some point, wouldn't you say, well, maybe this isn't the right answer, you know, and, and we, we confuse, you know, our roles. And I think that again, you know, history, the, the British were sort of the police of the world until you know, the Americans ended up doing it. And it's it's a very bad position to be in. I think it's, uh, you know, especially to try to use military answers for it. But I think we were a lot more honest about it. We called it what it was, an empire. We never said, <laughs> we, 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 we never said we're the world police and we're doing this well by everyone. We said, we are the empire. We are the center of the empire and we're, right. having, you good sh- we're having you good shit. So, I know. And it's no, like, and if you right. if you don't like if you don't like it, you want to meet these guys in red coats because <laughs> they might not have done that well in America, but everywhere else they did pretty bloody well. Yeah, and uh, um and and that's the difference now. It's like, oh well, we're 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 policing, and people know it's not policing, and you they don't know, think, yeah. When you've got an Abrams, when you can't go out into a city without an Abrams tank in front of your Bradley infantry van vehicles, it's not policing. You ain't kidding nobody. Yeah. Um, but but also it. it I I do like you. I really believe in the importance of words and the importance of language and stuff, because if you're you know you're part of it is like it, it, well one thing is it undermines how soldiers feel about themselves because like well I shouldn't feel that I did anything because I didn't go to war like my granddad. I just I just just doing a policing action. It's like well you did get shot a hundred times while you were there. Mm-hmm. You know it, it's like um, so there's, there's that kind of side to it, but also it's the public perception. I remember coming back and like, look, my ego is involved in this. I'll, I'll, I'll put it out there. I came back from Iraq, um, 2007, as you know, it was a bad, bad time out there. Uh, I came back, saw the girl that I'd always liked in school. I thought, now's the time. I'm a war hero. Um, <laughs> so I went to tell her, I was like, I'm, she's like, oh, I haven't seen your face. I've been in Iraq. And I thought she'd be like, oh my God, my hero. And she was like, Oh, I've heard it's all right there, isn't it? It's uh, Afghanistan where all the fighting's going on. And and but that was the public perception at home. They didn't realise we were losing more blokes in Iraq in two thousand six, two thousand seven, we were in Afghanistan, because yeah. they were told it was a police in action. It's right. Um and, and, and that those words matter. They do. Clearly, yeah. Yeah. I think they do. Well, public perception is is is, you know, comes directly from the politicians again who frame it and uh they don't like to frame it in terms of war because you can win and lose wars. You, you basically can't lose a police action. Yeah, <laughs> that's a great point. That's a great point. Um, so uh, you talked about we um, 
in, in the book, you met you and I, I couldn't believe this. I had to do a double take on this when I went through that. You met like Joseph Campbell, the mythologist, in a bar. Um, I'll, I'll I'm, to my um, to my to my uh, whatever the word is. Uh, thing, I only recently came across um, Joseph Campbell, Jack Carr. Um, author, Navy SEAL and author talked about him on the podcast. So I'm, I'm reading the, the Hero with a Thousand Faces at the moment. And I couldn't believe that you, you saw him in a bar and, and, and had this conversation when you were going through this kind of existential crisis. Yeah. Um, can you talk us through, can you talk us through that meeting? Because I think a really, a very important point comes out of it. Yeah. Well, uh, Joseph Campbell is a famous mythologist, and and in when this happened, it was in the uh, '80s, uh, early '80s, and uh, he wasn't quite as famous because he hadn't done Star Wars yet. And I mean, for, for those who don't know, he's he's the the guy behind the mythology of Star Wars. Uh, Lucas is very involved in him, and he actually had him on the set. Uh, so he's 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 his mythological sort of archetypal um, take on the world is 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 part of that. But I had been reading a lot of Jungian psychology. And so then I got into uh, the masks of God, which is a four volume work. And it's, it's really good. So if you, if you finish the hero of a thousand faces, the masks of God is next and it's really good. But, uh, uh, and um, I was in a bar and I, and it was at this stage that I was in full blown post-traumatic stress, but I hadn't, any idea what was going on with it uh no one talked about it and no one knew much about it but i was behaving you know with all the usual weird behaviors that we all know and i was on a business trip and i go into the bar of this hotel in it was in oakland california and uh i, I couldn't believe it i look at the, down there and i said that's joseph campbell at the end of the bar and I go, it's almost like, you know, asking the girl to go out on a date. You know, it's like, God, if I go up to him and ask him if I can, you know, buy him a drink, he's going to say, get out of my sight. I'm, you know, I don't want to. You know. so, but anyway, I, I, after I had one drink myself, I girded my loins and I went down to the end of the bar. <laughs> and I said, Mr. Campbell, I said, I read your work. I'm so happy about it. Can I buy you a drink? And he looks at me, he says, well, hell yes, I'm Irish, aren't I? <laughs> <laughs> so I thought, okay, we're in, you know. Well, we started drinking and then we had dinner together and um, I started talking about the war and um, one particular troubling incident that I talk about in the book is where I killed a North Vietnamese soldier looking him in the eye. Uh, this does not happen very often, as you well know. I mean, usually it's at a, at a, at a distance. And... Uh, the short story of, of how that happened is that we they were throwing hand grenades at us from above the hill and uh, we were throwing them back and i f finally figured out we were going to run out of hand grenades so i told the two guys that i was with i said you know you toss the grenades but i'm going to be there and when they pop up to toss the grenades back i'll get them with my m16 and i crawled up the hill and around and i got into position on the ground maybe eight or ten feet from the fighting hole and one of the one of the North Vietnamese soldiers was dead already. You know, one of our grenades had connected, and this kid pops up with a grenade in his hand, those potato mashers, and uh, suddenly our eyes locked. And it was, you know, like I, I talk about how the enemy is a, a haji or a towelhead or a gook or a kraut, whatever you want. That's you do that so that you can kill them. 
That's not like something that's bad. That's the only way a decent person can do it. But when you look look a kid in the eyes, he's a kid. He's not a, he's not a gook anymore. But he had a hand grenade in his hand, and I and I was like, and I started whispering out loud to him, "Don't throw it! I won't pull the trigger. Don't throw it! I won't pull the trigger." And I knew he didn't speak English, but I thought, well, maybe somehow I can communicate it to him. Well, he just snarled at me. I mean, he just I mean, rage, hatred. I mean, it was like, ooh. And he threw the grenade. And as, as the grenade was coming toward me, I, I shot him. And uh, then the grenade landed. And luckily, I survived that. Um, I, after a few drinks, I, I, I started to talk to Campbell about this. And I, and, uh, and I have to admit, I, I, tears started coming because I felt remorse. I mean, I killed a human being. Not a gook. And uh, he said to me, he says, look, you had nothing to do with being born in America on the Oregon coast, entering the Marine Corps. He had nothing to do with being born in North, North Vietnam uh, in some village and entering the North Vietnamese army. That is just the world of opposites. And you two ended up on the other side of the world of opposites nothing to do with you what you had to do is do your side with a noble heart did you do it with a noble heart and i broke down bawling and i i i said yes i tried as hard as i could to do it with a noble heart and he just did absolution he just went like this and there you are and i was like God damn, you know, I mean, it was an amazing encounter. What a, you know, grace again. I mean, what are the odds of running into Joseph Campbell in the bar? It sounds like the start of a joke, but, uh, uh, (laughs) oh, fuck. Yeah. But that, but that, the noble heart is important because almost all of us do try to do it with a noble heart and, and to understand that the other side is trying to do it with a noble heart. We are in this world of opposites. I, I mean, some kid who's raised, as a fundamental Muslim who believes that that Satan is going to take over the world. If we allow the Americans or the Brits or whoever it is, the Western Europeans to force their way of life on us. I mean, he's trying very hard to stop that. And I think he's wrong. I think he's deluded and all that, but I don't blame him, you know? And, and and so I think that you have to do your bit on your side of the world of opposites with a noble heart. And that, has helped me a lot in terms of putting my experiences into some kind of perspective. Um, it, it, it wasn't up to me to declare the war. It wasn't up to me to be born in America. I mean, it just wasn't, but what is up to me is how I conduct myself. And, uh, uh, I think that's where, where everybody should try and be. God bless Joseph Campbell. Yeah, God bless him. I think um, part of it is understanding as well that, be it the Taliban or the North Vietnamese Army, that if you'd have been like, like you're saying, if you'd have been, if I'd have been born in Lahore in Pakistan or something, I probably would have ended up fighting against the British in Pakistan. Probably would have done. And and and, and it's acknowledging that. It, it's a circumstance plays so much in, and like you're saying, you don't have a choice over your circumstances. Um, and I, I have a lot of friends that beat themselves up over. Uh, I have friends that um uh, that have wiped out 
families in minibuses and things like that in Afghanistan because they thought they were hitting Taliban and they weren't. And I said to you, you didn't kill them because you thought you were killing the family. You thought you were killing the Taliban who were on their way to kill civilians or on their way to kill your friends. Your intentions were pure. And I think that that's a very important thing, not only when we're talking about combat, but just life in general. So, you know, because we're all going to fuck something up. Yes, absolutely. But did you, yeah. but did you do it for the good? Did you do it for the right reasons? Or did, did you, did you, did you go into it the right reasons? I and this is where it gets really murky. And this is why I do think about hanging politicians on a daily basis. I should, probably shouldn't say that because I'm probably setting myself up for a tribunal here in 15 right. years' time on the Big Brother. There'll be a but knock you know, on your door this afternoon. Cal, you know what? There's enough evidence out there by now. Um, <laughs> I, there's, a, there's a reason they chuck, they chuck in artists first, uh, first into, the mass, into the mass grave. Uh, was we, we give away all our secrets. Yeah, that's but, right. Um, but I, I genuinely believe because what, like you have to know as a young as a young man or woman or anyone that's a warrior archetype going away you are acting out of the pure heart you think that you you are going there to do good when i went to afghanistan when i went to iraq i had my doubts about what was going on but i thought we're doing this for the right reasons let's get it done and then there's these people then that know that and and use your good intentions for not so good ends on their part. Yeah. And there's no consequence to it because there used to be consequence to that kind of stuff. Mussolini at the end of the war, uh, at the end of the war, he had, he had, he had a date with some piano wire, mm-hmm. you know, like there was a consequence for, for things. Now, now there isn't. And you've mentioned a few times, you said you're not a pacifist. I'm not. I think that anyone that thinks that you can live life with no violence is, is, um, they're coming from a very nice place, but it's a place of total fantasy. But the truth is right now that like, I think, I think there's a reason that militaries around the world in the Western world struggle to recruit now, because I think people have, 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 have woken up to this. But that puts us in a dangerous place because there's going to come a time and a place where War is the right thing to do. And we've kind of cried wolf on it, haven't we? Yes. Good way of looking at it. Yeah. I don't think that the United States has been in a necessary war, one that preserves our way of life uh, since World War II. Uh, Korea was a pretty clear-cut invasion of, of uh, a pro-Western pseudo-democracy I mean, what was his name park was you know kind of a dictator but still it was pretty clear cut that they were coming south on uh, moss and so okay that's it. but by the time we got to vietnam i mean uh, you know the north vietnamese army wasn't storming the beaches at malibu i'm sorry <laughs> you know we weren't we, we, and the taliban isn't storming the beaches at malibu either i mean so we're not threatened and uh you, I think that, that the more you use the military when you're not threatened and you're, you, you, there's not your national survival at stake, I think you nailed it. It's, it's crying wolf. And people are going to start to say, I don't want to be involved in that because it's sort of like I call it uh, the military is becoming the Praetorian Guard for the presidency. Uh, that is not right. I mean, the Congress is supposed to declare war. The last time the American Congress declared war, it's in the Constitution, for Christ's sake, was in June of 1942. America declared war against Romania, Bulgaria, and Hungary. 
And the reason was because they were allies of, of Germany. And the underlying thing was that Congress took it seriously. They said, well, we can't fight these countries unless Congress says we can. So Congress declared war. That was it. That was the last time. They don't want to take the responsibility. And I think they're cowards for, for abandoning that constitutional obligation. I hope they did it back. And you can see how, how it goes when you get a crazy man at the helm. I mean, it, with, if, if Congress was more powerful and, and, and still had its, con, its, its constitutionally granted powers and had been exercising them, I would feel a lot uh, less worried about <clears throat> the United States going off the, uh, the rails here. Uh, so uh, where did I get off on this? Anyway, the, it, 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 I, I just think that, that uh, the whole thing about misuse of the military by politicians is, is absolutely true. And another reason is because in the ninth, by 1990, I think something like two thirds of the Congress had all served in the military. Wow. And, and today it's like, I don't know, 20, <laughs> you know, yeah. Yeah. I mean, so they have no idea when they're saying, well, yeah, we're going to, we're going to go send the troops in and we'll, we'll, we'll stabilize Afghanistan or, or we'll, we'll, what stabilize? That means, you know, like you said, that means making a mistake and killing a busload of kids, you know, that's what you're doing, but they don't think that way because they've never been there. Um, and the language they use too, the language they use is deliberately um, sanitary. Yeah. You know, totally. you know, it's, it's deliberately, it's, you know, it's, and I, I don't, I'm not one of these people that believes you should have had to serve in the military to hold political office. But I do think that if you hold political office, you look, there's always a war going on somewhere. You can go and see, you can go and see war. Like it's not hard. Yeah. Uh, and I believe if you are going to be in the upper echelons um, of politics, you should be going to see war up, up close and personal um, because then you'd have a very different opinion about it. Yeah. You know? Yeah. I think that that's, that's, that's absolutely right. You know, there's a, there's a, uh, an organization here called with honor started by a Marine uh, uh, named Rye Barcott. And it's a political action group that funds veterans races for Congress uh, and it funds Republican and Democrat 50, 50, but they have to all be veterans. And the, the idea is that they know better and they also know how to work toward a common goal mm -hmm. as opposed to just being so fractious like, like most civilian politicians are. Um, they've been successful in, in 2018. They, they got, I think, like about 12 people elected. And I don't know how they're going to do this this year, but they're working real hard. So, it's, it's, so we're not the only ones with this idea. Yeah, well, they had that Unity 2020 ticket, didn't they, where it was like a... Um the idea would be it was like a bipartisan ticket so that instead of, you know, so basically you, you rotate through the position of, you know, presidency with these different, um, so you have, um, they had uh, Tulsi Gabbard on, who we've had on the podcast. She's um, uh, she's still a reservist. Um, mm -hmm. She's a Democrat. And then there was Dan Crenshaw on from the Republicans, the SEAL. Um, and those guys are friends and they, they talk and they want to get things done and they want to put America first rather than, you know, one party or the other, but it's, it comes back to that cheering on the hill. Yeah. It's this instinct in us. We want to cheer on the hill. Right. And it's like, right, well, um, this, you know, our, our side one cheering on the hill. Great. It's yeah. like, okay, well, what, what does that mean? What did it take to get there? And what's that going to cost you? You know, there's a cost to, to all of this, all of this stuff. 
Um, I've got so many more notes. <laughs> so many more notes here. So I'm trying. I want. I tell you. I tell you what I, I want to do because, um, like, we've had a good laugh on this podcast, and I do think that's important. I do think it's always important to you can go into. Um, you can go into some deep topics. Some deep topics because this is another thing as well. Um, I think that some veterans out there feel that you have to feel sad about when you when you're reflecting on service is almost a the same way that you're told by society, hey, you got to feel really bad when you see someone, when you shoot someone. That's not actually the truth. Like, there's a very different experience you had locking eyes with someone, like you said, extremely rare now. Most most people, myself included, the people we shot or shot at, were, was, it, was, it was a target, and that's all it was. It was not a human being. Um, but when we, when we look at this stuff, we talk about this stuff, it's important to... To, to to look at it and, and be able to bring out the bright side. So you are the man you are today because of combat. So what was what was the the benefit? What what was what was worth it? Uh, what are the things that you have in your life now that made it all worth it? Friends, I have really good friends. I mean, uh, if one of these guys called me from jail in Timbuktu, I'd be on an airplane, COVID or not, and I'd go down there and try and help him out. I mean, it's that that sense of of true friendship because. Uh, you you don't have a friend until you have to rely on him for your life. Mm-hmm. And when you have a friend that's that deep, they they last. So I think that's one thing that I, I've carried back. I still see these guys. Uh, uh, and we, we, you know, every Marine Corps birthday, I'm on the phone uh, and, and uh, <laughs> we, 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 and we laugh about stuff, you know, and funny things that happen. Uh, Again, I remember, you know, conversations with my father's generation. I'd be a little kid, you know, listening in. Most of the stuff they talked about then, of course, it was cultural, too, was funny things that happened. Yeah, I remember that time we got drunk on Calvados in that, that cellar in France. And, yeah, I remember that. And you couldn't find your way back. And you really got your ass shot off because that's right. <laughs> you, know, you know, it was all one big lark, right? You know, that, but on the other hand, that's true. Mm-hmm. That did happen. That was funny, you know. And. And I agree with you that, uh, and I write about it quite honestly, there is no bigger rush than, than combat. I mean, I can remember killing a guy and getting him right between the eyes and feeling fabulous because it was such a great shot. You know, God, right between the eyes. All right. You know, well, you know, that's not something you want to crow about, except to maybe another group of veterans, which is what we're doing right now. But on the other hand, don't deny that. That's there. It really is there. Uh, uh, my, my analogy for it is it, it's like crack cocaine. You, 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 you tell a kid that, that, that crack cocaine is no fun, you're lying to him. On the other hand, you better tell him about what the costs of using crack are. Addiction and dereliction and, oh, oh, yeah. No, no, you get the high, but you have the costs. And combat's the same way. But if we deny the highs... We're just kidding ourselves. Uh, I sometimes yearn for that, that the cleanness of it all. Take the hill. All right. How am I going to do that? Well, I got, I got the New Jersey over here with 16 inch guns and I've got uh, A4s coming out of Da Nang and I've got, you know, boom, boom, boom. God, the power. Unbelievable. I wish I had that, you know, but maybe it's a good thing I don't because I probably would have napalmed that, that vision, you know. <laughs> You could, you could, you could come here. With, we got non-extradition in, in Wales. You can come stay with but, but yeah, I, I, I agree with you. Uh, you have to be honest about it. Got, 
look, I mean, if war weren't fun for some people, they wouldn't be doing as much of it. But you get to a certain level. I mean, I would guess the general up to through the politician level. Geez, look at this map and how are we going to do this? It's like a big game again, isn't it? Yeah, big, you know? okay. I yeah. There's a reason people go back for multiple tours. Yes, like, yeah, you don't yeah. go. You don't. You don't come. Like I did multiple tours. I know a lot of people did listen and do multiple tours. Uh, you didn't come back off one and go because you could have just gone. Right, I'm done. No, you went back and you went back. Yeah, there was something about it. And then something, something that doesn't really get talked about. Most of the guys, or not most of the guys, a large proportion of the guys that fought the war on terror are still in Syria, Iraq, Afghanistan as private contractors. Really? Yeah. Yeah. I've got friends, mate, who have been pretty much constantly deployed since 2003, 2006, because they, they do nine months of their year in Iraq, Afghanistan, Syria. They've been out there. They're like the armies of Alexander. They're just, they've gone. <laughs> yeah. No, but they've gone and they're not coming back. Right. And, but they'll have to come back. And, we're, and this is what worries me about the veteran thing is we haven't seen the tip of the, like we haven't seen the tip of the iceberg with the war on terror veterans yet. Because they, a lot of them haven't come back. Like the guys that can't handle civilian life don't need to. They're over there. They're over there. Like they're over there right now. Now they're in the forties. Like now they're late thirties, early forties. They probably got another ten years in them. Ten years time, we're going to see these guys coming back. Yeah. And it's going to be a mess. Well, th that goes back to this warrior archetype. They are still identified with it. Mm -hmm. You know, instead of saying it's part of my personality, it is my personality. That's dangerous. And and as long as you can keep going back. Well, it's, it, it's healthy. I mean, you don't you want to be identified as a warrior w when you're in the fight because if you don't, if you're not, you're you're not going to survive. But when you come back to civilian life, if you're still identified as a warrior, first of all, you're going to always be out of place. You're always going to feel like it's the wrong place in the wrong time. But that's that's not because civilian life is wrong. I mean, it, civilian life should be the norm. You should be coming back and saying, okay, I'm not a warrior anymore. It's going back inside. It's going to be back, you know, I'll call on it if I need it, but it isn't me. Uh, and I think that the identifying with that warrior is, is what keeps drawing people back because it's comfortable. They know who it is. It's, it's their identity and they just don't want to shed it. Uh, you've got to shed it. If you're going to reintegrate into civilian life, you've got to put the warrior archetype back under control where it, where it belongs. And, you know, sort of like your sword is put it in the sheath and, you know, you use it when you needed it. But if you're identified with it, you're going to have trouble or, or you're going to do a lot of drugs. You know? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I second that one. Um, <laughs> right. So, um, just, I want to finish on one that everyone that complies to everyone right now, veteran, civilian, whatever, what to you makes a happy day? <laughs> Oh, well, what makes a good day? What are consistently, what are, what are consistently like things that consistently make a good day for you? I can tell you exactly because I was surrounded in Vietnam and thought I was going to die. We were down to seven bullets each and they were going to hit us again. And I knew it was all over. Luckily a chopper got in with some ammunition, but, and I remember thinking to myself, what would I miss from an ordinary day back home? What, and I remember looking at a piece of grab, I grabbed some dirt and just looked at it and said, I'll never see dirt again. I mean, it was a weird moment, but boy, was it, did it focus my mind? It was friends. I want to see my friends. I want to have a wife and kids, family that I like, and I want to be able to do work that I enjoy doing, and I want to be healthy. A good day is to see a friend 
you know, be with your family, do some work that you like doing and be in good health. That's a good day. And God, you know, thank God I was granted that. Guys, thank you for listening today. Royal British Legion, thanks for making it happen. Um, this doesn't happen without you. And uh, Cal, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Uh, I really enjoyed that conversation. What can I say? Um, I, I, and I, I'm going to keep saying this, guys, because I don't think I'll say it enough, honestly, um, that none of this happens without you listening. None of this happens. You guys who are making posts, um, and if you're not making posts, I would really appreciate it if you do to spread the word. Um, I have had some messages in the DMs this week. I'm not going to lie. Made me cry a little bit. There were some really nice things in there. When I started this podcast, to be honest, guys, uh, I thought there was going to be, um, I thought it was just going to be a laugh and banter and stuff. I never realized that there would be people in there who it was like so kind of like impactful for. And that's, oh, it's only reached those people because of what you guys have been doing, right? I sit here in the studio, but it doesn't go anywhere without you guys listening, without you guys spreading the word, right? Otherwise, it's just me talking to myself, right? So thank you for that. You guys that have been spreading the word, honestly now, you have been a part of bringing people back from the edge, right? So I want you to fucking, I want you to realize that because it is so important and you guys have, you guys made that happen. So thank you. The Poppy Appeal, guys, needs our help. Let's get behind it. There's links, everything, again, down in the notes. Keep an eye out on social media. If you're not following us, at Veteran State of Mind. Um, like I said, we're going to be auctioning some stuff off on there. Um, let's get behind it, guys, and do everything we can to support it. Um, and, and with that being said as well, please, if you enjoyed today's podcast and if you uh, want to support Cal, which um, I would say I would, I would personally thank you for because he has um, helped not only me, but some of my best friends come through dark times. Um, his books are that powerful that literally I think I, I think it's fair to say that reading Carl's books can change your life for the better I really truly believe that um, everything's linked up to him down the bottom I really appreciate what you guys are doing um, I'll catch you next time I love you bye you told me not to worry and you wouldn't break my heart you told me you were sorry and yeah, my whole world fell apart you said it's not my fault and yeah I've never done you wrong I'm grinding to a halt now I can see you're moving on I promised I'd get better and I told you things would change you keep me to the gutter yeah I'll never be the same I've got I let you go, now live your life and spread your wings And yet you put on quite a show And pull the puppet strings And are you sure that you don't want me? Remember all the pain Or maybe you should thank me It's your loss and my gain I'm leaving now forever I won't hang my head in shame But yeah, you've taken me for granted And you should feel ashamed You sold a dream to all of us A dream that we'd all die for A reason for us all to live And something we could fight for I might just help a man up to his feet Or hold a newborn But no matter what I do My hands remembering my rifle, yeah Life's hard, I know that Still wouldn't Same shit, I wouldn't go back, yeah, I wouldn't go back Feelings I hold back, memories fade, yeah, they go fast, yeah, they go fast Good times to come and go, survive the highs and lows Just take it step by step, I guess, yeah, I suppose Good times to come and go, survive the highs and lows Just take it step by step, I guess, yeah, I suppose